Good morning. please pray with me. Gracious Father, we thank you for the blessed occasion of the gathering of your people. Father, we come before you with thanksgiving. We thank you for sending your son to save us from our sins. Father, we thank you for freedom and liberty to gather together and to worship. Father, we desire that we might worship in spirit and in truth. Father, we desire that we might be pleasing you we love you and thank you for loving us father we love you because you first loved us would you bless your people this day would you feed your sheep would you give us what we need we ask you this in jesus name amen well saints i hope you had a good thanksgiving holiday last week and that you were filled to overflowing with gratitude for the goodness of our God. Thankfulness as a mindset and giving of thanks as a recurring practice is most appropriate for people who have partaken of God's grace as we have. Thanksgiving is a mindset and The giving of thanks as a recurring practice is most appropriate for us. There's another practice that I want us to be reminded of. A mindset, a responsibility, a duty that's ours. Because we are recipients of the wonderful grace of Jesus. And that is the duty of repentant living. Repentant living. To ease into that idea this morning, I want to let's be reminded of the doctrine of human depravity, human fallenness. When we study the flower of grace, the tulip in our inquirers and new members class, we learn that the T of the tulip the doctrine that makes the U, the L, the I, and the P necessary, the T is total depravity. Total depravity is that horrible but essential doctrine that teaches that all, the totality, all of humanity is fallen, the entire race, and that human nature meaning the natural inclinations of fallen humans are corrupted, totally corrupted, and are inclined towards evil rather than towards good. The fall, the fall of Adam and Eve recorded in the book Genesis is a fall from a state of grace into a state of nature fallen nature. Now let's clarify. When we use that word natural or nature, confusion can result. Can it? Think with me for a minute. The the confusion can result um, because human nature today arguably is unnatural. 
Recall from the Genesis account that when God created humanity, man and woman, he surveyed the entirety of his creation and he noted that it was what? Very good. Very good. The original state of the created man and woman was a state of perfection. And so the state of humanity that we witness today with corruption, disease, death, depravity, and despair, well, it's in a sense most unnatural. What was originally unnatural for us, humanity, has now become natural. So the T of the tulip, total depravity, listen, is sometimes referred to as the doctrine of total hereditary depravity. Have you heard that? Total hereditary depravity, indicating that just like eye color and blood type and skin tone, you got your fallen nature from your parents. It came to you hereditarily right there in your DNA. Remember, the Bible teaches, quote, God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Genesis 1, verse 27. So the original humans, listen, were perfect image bearers of God. But after the original sin, after the fall, the Bible teaches, quote, Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image. And he called his name Seth. And the days of Adam after he had begotten Seth were 800 years and he begat sons and daughters. Genesis 5 verses 3 and 4. Now did you note that subtle change in the language? Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. Seth was in the likeness of Adam after his image. And the image of Adam after sin was a fallen image. And Adam passed it along to his sons and to his daughters and all the way down to you and to me. Total hereditary depravity. We got our problems in our DNA, friend. Our discussion of the morning, listen, I'm asserting that the natural state of man after Eden is a state of fallenness. So the natural man, you understand how this could be confusing? What's natural? For you to be perfect or for you to be sinful? I'm asserting for our discussion this morning, when I say natural man, I'm talking about post-fall. So fallen man. The nature of humanity has been so corrupted by the fall that today, in the state of nature, we find humans depraved. Even though ultimately, that's an unnatural state. So then now, 
unnatural state has become natural. Humanity has fallen. Now listen, a, a proper doctrine or a proper understanding of the doctrine of universal human depravity is critical for an appreciation of the necessity of initial repentance and critical for apprehending the Christian duty of what I termed this morning, repentant living. But before we discover or or consider our responsibility for repentant living, I want to describe a theological error that is widely present today. And the error is this. It's the idea that Christianity is all about, quote, getting saved, unquote. Or Christianity is all about going to heaven when you die. You could listen, you could almost call it event Christianity. The idea of Christianity as an event, the new birth, conversion, salvation, or whatever buzzword we want to use for that. It's an event. And the error, listen, the error is that this event, the new birth, is the purpose or the end of Christianity. It's all about you getting saved. All about you going to heaven when you die. And beloved, listen, I understand this emphasis, even though I believe that it's ultimately misguided. If you believe, listen, if you believe in the teaching of Christianity as articulated in the Bible, then you understand that only those who are rightly related to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will ultimately be saved in the end. Right? The others will be lost. So I understand the emphasis. And if you are a lover of humanity and desire the salvation of men, then it's easy to understand the focus upon the event of conversion, of salvation, of the new birth. It's very important. Very important. But listen, it's not the end. It's not the end or the purpose of Christianity. Let's think about purpose or end for a minute. Birth is the entry into life of a child. Right? But the goal of birth is growth and maturity. Aristotle formulated, or at least he he wrote down this idea of telos in, in English we translated it, it would transliterate it would be T-E-L-O-S telos or ends and the Greek telos comes to us in English in words like telescope we look way out there to the end what's the end what's way out there that's the telos that's the end of a thing and in Aristotle's thought The telos, the end of a puppy, is a dog. Or we could say the purpose or end of a puppy is to become a dog, to grow up into a dog. Carolyn's a beautiful baby. Mallory is too. But their telos is not babyhood. 
the infant will become a child, and the child will become a woman. And the purpose or end of a child is to become a man or a woman. That's its end. That's its purpose. Listen, the great apostle Paul teaches this doctrine of ends. Please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, and look back there to verse 17, or sorry, verse 11. Ephesians 4, verse 11. The great apostle writes, He gave some apostles and some prophets, some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. We'll stop there. Ephesians 4 verses 11 through 16. But listen, did you see Paul teaches at the end the purpose of these pastors and teachers is to facilitate growth and maturity in the people of God. That's what they're there for. That's their purpose. And look at those phrases, quote, a perfect man. Come to fullness. No more children. Grow up. Increase of the body. So the goal, the purpose, the end, the telos, is to grow up. Now, I was a baby boy. I had three older sisters, and so I used to hear all the time, grow up. The Apostle Peter teaches the same thing that Paul does. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. And look there to the second verse. Peter writes, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, temperance, and to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, 
They make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We'll stop there. 2 Peter 1, verses 2 through 11. But did you hear Peter teaches that we are to be actively, diligently, that is, with diligence, adding virtue and knowledge and temperance and patience and godliness Brotherly kindness and charity to our lives. We're to be adding these things. We are to be growing into the stature of the fullness of Christ. Did you hear the grow up? So listen, I believe that viewing the new birth as an end, as much of modern evangelicalism does, is wrong. You see, the new birth, the conversion, even baptism, is not an ending. Rather, it's a beginning. Right? Listen, there's a danger. There's a danger even to those of us who understand and hold to sound doctrine of looking back upon our justification as though it were the end of it all. At least until death comes. Well, I'm saved. I'm converted. But beloved, listen. According to Holy Scripture, it's not the end. It's the beginning. Listen, birth is essential to life. But we parents, we're thankful for the births of our children, but we're thankful that they're living and growing up, aren't we? When they have a new baby, they'll say, oh, we're so thankful. We have a healthy baby. Well, God bless you. Let me tell you what. When that baby's three years old, you're going to be even happier. They're growing. They're doing well. Listen, can you imagine a couple getting married? Jeff, can you imagine this? Think with me for a minute. Just so, that you, just so they can enjoy the marriage ceremony. Oh, we're looking forward to that. Marriage ceremony. What? No. No. What they want is to live together, to grow together, to spend their lives together. Right? That's why they get married. That's why they go through that event. And in some ways, the new birth is like that. In some ways, it's everything. But in other, word, other ways, it's very little. It's everything, listen, it's everything because it's indispensable to begin with. But it's little in comparison with a living, existing relationship with God through Christ. Do you understand? Listen, I am happy. Makes me happy. I'm happy when I see a young Christian couple get married. I am. Makes me happy. 
But listen, I'm impressed and fulfilled when I see a faithful Christian couple that's been married for decades. Conversion is the beginning of the Christian life. It's critical. But listen, there's a whole life to live after it. We're called to live our lives to the honor of our Savior. And it's been said before, but I'll say it again. In some ways, it's easier to die for Christ than it is to live for Him. You see... From what we just read, we see that the apostolic desire is that we grow up into a perfect man. We're to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the truth. We're to become conformed to the image of God's Son. We're to cultivate the mind of Christ. So so think with me for a minute. We've reminded ourselves of the doctrine of universal human depravity. And we've just said that the end or purpose of the new birth is not just to be born again, but to grow up, to mature, and thus to bring glory to God. And what I want for us to be reminded of this morning is this, listen, listen. In light of those two truths, in light of the fallenness of humanity and in light of the end for which we are born in the new birth, we Christians are duty-bound to live our lives repentantly. Or we could say, we Christians have a duty of perpetual repentance. Remember, remember our metaphor of birth as an entrance, a grand entrance into life. And consider, after birth, the child, listen, the child contributes to its own growth. Doesn't it? Consciously and unconsciously. Consider Carolyn and Mallory. They eat, they exercise, they rest, they grow. They ingest food, which builds their strength and enables their growth. Look at Carolyn. She grows, she learns, she knows. And what, listen, what is the biggest danger to her progress? Well, it's death. Sickness. Infection. And listen, we know that in our metaphor, infection equals sin. In our metaphor. And listen, infection must be removed. A human cannot live a good life with active infection in their body. Uncontrolled infection will damage 
the body. It has to be suppressed. It has to be rooted out. It has to be overcome. And stay with our metaphor. The Christian antibiotic is repentance. A lifestyle of perpetual repentance. Listen, when men or women ask us, what do I need to do to become a Christian? What do we say? Well, we echo Christ and the apostles and we tell them, repent. And we tell them, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? But listen, we know, don't we know, that repentance is not a singular phenomenon? Don't you know? Consider David, the man after God's own heart. God's a man. And what does he do? He cries out to God in Psalm 51. He makes confession to the Almighty in repentant grief. And he says, I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and clear when thou judgest. Psalm 51 verses 3 and 4. Listen, we know that David was God's man. Wasn't he? And yet here he must repent and turn again, again, again to his God. Or should we go to the first epistle from that apostle of love there in 1 John 1, 9, where he instructs us that when we confess our sins in repentance before God, that God is faithful, even just, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from the unrighteousness. Quote, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, verse 9. Beloved, listen, when, when we were converted, there was an initial repentance involved with our conversion. But now we have a duty to perpetually repent of all known sin before God. That's what I'm reminding us of this morning. A repentant lifestyle. There's a principle explicitly stated in Holy Scripture in Proverbs 28, 13. And this is it. Listen. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper. But whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Now, if you didn't get that reference, you might want to write it down. Proverbs 28, 13. It's a good one. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. And listen, beloved, what is this confessing and forsaking of sin but repentance? 
It's a turning. And listen, this, this principle is seen over and over in Holy Scripture. Do you remember how the Hebrews fled and fell before their enemies when Achan had hidden his treasured sin in the bottom of his tent? Nobody knows. Mm. But don't you remember how the blessing of God returned to his people after the evil was put away? After the evil was purged? In Numbers 32, 23, the Lord told the Israelites, be sure your sin will find you out. The apostolic writer of the Hebrews assures us, quote, all things are naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Hebrews 4.13. You can't hide anything from God. He knows. He sees. Dr. Luke records the words of Jesus who said, There is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Therefore, whatsoever you have spoken in darkness shall be heard in light. And that which you have spoken in the ear in closets shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. Luke 12, verses 2 and 3. When you study the life of David, the man after God's own heart, you'll see, listen, you'll see that the scripture is not flattering to him. His sins, his failings, his fallings are not hidden. They're there for us all to read. Well, listen, this was God's man. How is that? Well, listen, friend, if you see David as a great sinner, you also need to see David as a great repenter. If you read David's Psalms of repentance, they're deep. There is no half-hearted repentance there. Nina Shakespeare's friar in Romeo and Juliet told Rome, Romeo the Montague, vague repentance yields vague absolution. No half-hearted repentance in David. He pours out his soul before the Lord. Confession is made. Chastisement is administered. And on he goes. Restored in his relationship with God. Several years ago, I learned Psalm 139. And as you do, if you memorize a scripture passage, I said it to myself over and over and over again. And the last two verses always bothered me. The last two verses of Psalm 139 are a prayer. And David prays to the Almighty and says, Search me, O God. This is David. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Bother you like it bothered me? Do you understand what David's saying? I'll tell you what he's saying. He's saying, God, as far as I know, I'm clean. 
God, as far as I know, I'm pure. Check me out. You, check me out. Wow. Wow. Listen, beloved, only a great repenter could pray that. Only a great repenter. Let me ask you a question. Are you a great sinner? Don't lie. If we say we have no sins, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1, 8. Listen, if you're a sinner, a little one, or a big one, you know what you should do? You should repent. Listen, you should become a great repenter. You should get good at it. You know how you get good at something? You practice it. You practice it. Listen, in the Lord's Prayer that we prayed just a few moments ago, we're taught the duty of perpetual repentance from the lips of our Savior Himself. Aren't we? The prayer is taught to Jesus' disciples, His beloved and redeemed disciples. And it's taught them as a model, a paradigm, a pattern, a way for them and for us to pray over and over and over and over again. And the holy apostles are instructed to ask for forgiveness from the Almighty again and again and again. When you pray, say, we're to pray to ask God the Father to forgive us from our sins. For though He is saving us, yet we sin. Forgive us our trespasses. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our sins. And we'll forgive those that sin against us too. I've spoken to you before about the Greek word that's most often translated as repentance. And the word is metanoia. Noia translated to mind. And meta refers to change. You know like how a caterpillar metamorphoses into a butterfly? It's a radical change. Repentance is a change of the mind. And in the caterpillar to butterfly, it's a pretty significant change. So technically, to repent is to change our minds, to agree with God against ourselves, to say again to God, you are right. I was wrong. Forgive me. Forgive me again. And help me to go the right way. Help me to go your way. Repentance. What I'm telling you, friend, is you don't need to change your mind once. You need to change it again and again and again. Your old flesh nature will pull you down and make you think you're doing fine. Repent. 
But we need to have repentance not as something that happened a long time ago. Oh, yeah, I repented of my sins. I'm asking you, friend, are you repenting now? As heirs of human depravity, until we are delivered from these bodies wounded by the fall, we will sin. We may sin inadvertently. We may trespass. We may sin in passion. We may be, quote, overtaken in a fault, unquote. God forbid that we sin willfully and presumptuously. But we will sin. And we're saying that God has not saved us just to be born again. But we're to grow up into maturity in Christ. And we're saying that in light of where we've come from, depravity, and in light of where we're going, maturity, we have a duty, a perpetual duty to be about the business of repenting of our sins, of confessing them and forsaking them, of living a lifestyle of repentance, of praying again and again and again, Father, forgive us our trespasses. Listen, hear me please on this. One of the marks of true Christianity is a heightened awareness of sin. Call it an elevated consciousness or an enlivened conscience. Call it Holy Ghost sensitivity. But listen, sin bothers Christians. It bothers them. And listen, it especially bothers them when they find it in themselves. In 1 John 1.8, we read the apostolic teaching that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Paul writes in Romans 8 that if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if we synthesize those two truths, we can see that a person who is not aware of his or her own sinfulness, a person who cannot find their own sin, listen, is not a Christian. For the truth is not in them and they are deceived. Are you with me? So what about us? What about you? Do you sin? When you see your sin, do you hate it? Do you hate it enough to confess it and forsake it? Do you make confession to the Lord and do you forsake your sin? Well, I'll tell you a little story. Long ago, when I got married as a young man of 19, many gave me advice. The men of the church that I was a member of at the time, they had a fish fry for me. And they wrote down advice on little index cards. And somebody stood up and read them all. Most of them were humorous. But some of them were actually wise counsel. And I don't remember if this advice came from that forum or from somewhere else. But I had some counsel given to me. And this is what it was. 
Three words. Keep short accounts. That was the counsel. Keep short accounts. Now, that phrase, keep short accounts, that's business lingo. And it has to do with credit. If a shopkeeper allows you to take things home without cash on the barrel head, well, then he's issued credit to you. You understand? And if you want to preserve a good business relationship and a good credit with relationship with him, then you need to keep short accounts. You understand? You should pay the balance often. You should clear the account regularly. Now that was marital advice that was given to me. And the gist of it was that Jeannie and I shouldn't let issues or problems grow until there was a big blowout. Rather, we should work through little problems regularly by, quote, keeping short accounts. Do you understand what the counsel was? Well, I think it was good advice. I, th I think it was good advice. But listen, listen, friend. If that was wise counsel in the earthly marital relationship, how much more is it good advice in the heavenly relationship? We should keep short accounts with our God. And according to the Pauline writings, Christ is our husband and we, the church, are his bride. We should make confession when it's needed and forsake our sins and keep short accounts. Now listen, is this a little thing? Just a little thing? Confess your sins. Confess your sins. Confess your sins. Ask your Father to forgive you. Is that a little thing? Isn't it just a Small yet regular duty. Do you remember the story of great Naaman, the Syrian? This is from 2 Kings chapter 5, but you remember Naaman was the brilliant commander of King Ben-Hadad of Syria's army. But despite Naaman's military genius, Naaman had a most distasteful problem. He was infected with the horrible disease of leprosy. Naaman was a leper. And King Ben-Hadad sent a message to the king of Israel and demanded that the king of Israel, quote, recover Naaman of his leprosy. <laughs> a most disturbing development for the king of Israel. But you remember, God's great prophet Elisha, he heard about the demand and he said, there is a prophet in Israel. Send him to me, Elisha said. And don't you remember that Elisha didn't respect Naaman's distinguished personage, but he just sent a slave out and told him, go down there and wash in the Jordan Creek. 
What? Do you remember this? Naaman was offended at that small thing. Now, he would have greatly engaged in some marvelous military feat. Naaman would have. But listen, that was not what was required. Humble obedience was all that was needed. And some of Naaman's wise servants saw this. And they came to him and they said, Father, Father, if he bid you do some great work, you would do it. Why not this then? Why not this? And he did. Naaman did. He went down to the creek. And you remember, he was cleansed. The Bible says, his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Now, listen, beloved, that is not a metaphor. That's a historical narrative. But isn't there a lesson there? Jesus tells us, when you pray, say, forgive us our debts. When you pray, say, forgive us our trespasses. When you pray, say, forgive us our sins. Jesus said, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. John 14, 14. Confess sin and forsake sin. Repent. Do it again. Confess sin and forsake sin. Repent. Do it again. Listen. Wash, rinse, repeat. (laughs) Beloved, listen. We have no hard duty here just to wash and be clean. To let Jesus wash our feet as we walk the dusty paths of a fallen world to confess our sins and forsake our sins not long ago now now to keep short accounts with our God this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous 1 John 5 3 Oh, if my soul were formed for woe, how would I vent my sighs? Repentance should like rivers flow from both my streaming eyes. T'was for my sins, my dearest Lord hung on the cursed tree and groaned away a dying life for thee, my soul, for thee. Oh, how I hate those lusts of mine that crucified my God those sins that pierced and nailed his flesh fast to the fatal wood. Yes, my Redeemer, they shall die. My heart has so decreed, nor will I spare the guilty things that made my Savior bleed. Whilst with a melting, broken heart, my murdered Lord, I view, I'll raise revenge against my sins and slay those murderers too. 
Would you please stand with me for prayer? Let us pray. Lord Jesus, give me a deeper repentance, a horror of sin, a dread of its approach. Help me chastely to flee it and jealously to resolve that my heart shall be thine alone. Give me a deeper trust that I may lose myself to find myself in thee, the ground of my rest, the spring of my being. Give me a deeper knowledge of thyself as Savior, Master, Lord, and King. Give me deeper power in private prayer, more sweetness in thy word, more steadfast grip on its truth. Give me deeper holiness in speech, thought, action. And let me not seek moral virtue apart from thee. O plow deep in me, great Lord, heavenly husbandman, that my being may be a tilled field, the roots of grace spreading far and wide until thou alone art seen in me. Thy beauty golden like summer harvest, thy fruitfulness is autumn plenty. I have no master but thee, no law but thy will, no delight but thyself, no wealth but what thou givest, no good but that thou blessest, no peace but that thou bestowest. I am nothing but what thou makest me. I have nothing that I have not received from thee. I can be nothing unless thy grace adorns me. O oh, quarry me deep, dear Lord, and then fill me to overflowing with thy living water. In Jesus' name, amen.